Okay, folks, on Second uh, Peter, excuse me, in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 18, which is where we have left off as our journey through Peter's, uh, through Peter's uh, second letter. Uh, Peter writes, he says, um, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, the mountain. Mountain matters in the Bible. The mountain is, is, a, is an important symbol. It, it stands for something that we need to be uh, in, on, a, on a quest for uh, in, our, in our walk with Christ. Now, Peter speaks of experiencing the, the greatness of God through his voice, on the mountain. It's the symbol of God's holy presence, His absolute dominance, and the wonderful promise of His coming. Look, it was on Horeb, on the mountain of God, where Moses heard the voice of God telling him, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. Moses is a man of, of, of age at the time, before he's introduced to the God of his, of his fathers, to the God of the covenant. He meets God there on the mountain at Horeb. It matters when we go up on the mountain. It was on the mountain where Moses asked to see the manifest presence of God. In Exodus 33 verse 19, the Lord affirms His sovereignty, His dominance over everything. When He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He, he made sure that Moses knew that, that it is a unique experience to go upon the mountain and to meet face to face with the living God. It's a, it's a unique experience in the life of all humanity. Everyone doesn't get lots claim it, but few have actually done it. It's actually been there with God. Along the same lines, joyously, it is to the mountain that Christ will return. It's prophesied in Zechariah, in Zechariah 14, 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by very wide valleys so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Therefore, we know that the mountain, for anyone who is drawn by God to the place where His majesty would be evident, is always a transforming experience. That's the idea today. There's one word that characterizes everything we've got to talk, to talk about today. It's the idea of trans, legitimate transformation. And I might add a word that can get us in a ton of trouble. And that word is transcendence. We want a transcendent experience with God. Everybody wants that. Now, we don't walk around thinking we need this. We're just all of us at some point in our lives hemmed up into that place where we need for God to be 3D and not 2D. We need to be able to feel Him and experience Him. We want the touch of His hand upon our shoulder. We want that closeness. Maybe not always. I'll be honest with you. We probably should crave it always. But it's become for many of us utilitarian. The reality is the, the pursuit of God in that way can get in the way of all those things we either think we have to have or that we're supposed to have. We work too much. We, we, uh, we spend too much time in minutia. We don't spend enough time just simply pursuing God. 
But the mountain is where it happens. It's the mountaintop experience. And, 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 and being in the pastorate for a number of years now, I, I will say I've had those moments. The problem is always that we can have the mountaintop experience, but how do we make that experience extend to the valley? How can that, that experience of growing incredibly close to the living God in a moment through the manifestation of who God truly is for us, how can we make that extend to where we really need it? Because I've been on the mountain a lot of times. It's almost always been fair weather. It's almost always been a, a precious gift of God at just the right moment. But I was never wise enough to know that the gift was given now, but the moment was coming, was coming a little later. The idea of, of knowing Him so well that it, it helps us endure. The, being on the mountain is always transforming. Without the mountain, our God is as we individually understand Him. I don't mean we're allowed to have an individual opinion. I mean that we're all on an individual journey that leads to the same place by the same road, uh, by the same road map. But that God that we experience without the mountain can stay for us far too weak and too small to demand our fullest attention. We suddenly get a God that we've cubbyholed, painted into a corner, covered under glass with the instructions to break in case of sickness, a break in case of poverty, a break in case of family strife. A God that minds His business. A God that stays out of our way and lets us do what we want to do. One that doesn't lead. We can so easily find that. We can so easily have that kind of God. Now, it's not His doing, it's ours. Look, without an inkling of the truly infinite depth, breadth, and glory of our God, our own desires and priorities are always going to outshine a sun dimmed by a self-centered perspective. See, the smaller God gets in my experience, the less I understand Him, the, the fewer times I seek Him, the less opportunities I've had to stand on that mountain the bigger I get and the bigger my way gets. I start wanting to do things my way. Satisfying enough. I see God in my own self-interest. I see God in my will. And I never question whether His will and my will are the same. God becomes an affirmation for me. Or He becomes someone who, who gives affirmation. Whatever I do or whatever I think... Whatever I feel about something becomes right because I've, I've miniaturized God. I've made Him small. Now John Piper explained, explained it this way. He said, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. Smaller God gets, the more exciting a new car gets, or the more exciting a big house gets, or the more exciting a paycheck gets. If you can't see the sun you will be impressed with a street light. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. There's, there's the, the trap for the church. We have diminished the living God to the point now that 
we see so much glory in short-lived things. Politics becomes too important. Recreation becomes too important. We make idols out of things that God has blessed us with. The Piper statements are the are the, the warning expressed perfectly by, by uh, the Apostle John in 1 John 2.16, which says, For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We're, we're tasked today with differentiating that. We're saying, oh, wait a second, I've got to look at my life and look at my time, look at my habits, look at everything that makes up who I am in Christ. Because there's no sacred secular divide. You're all, you, you all belong all to Him or none at all. He either has you completely as bonded servant in the flesh or He doesn't have you at all. There's no part-time faith. There's no part-time Christianity. There's no God that I'm comfortable with. I'm comfortable with giving this to God, but God, I just can't give you this yet. I, I, I'll tell you this. If you can't give God this, you've never given Him this thing either. He's never had any of it. Because God only understands faith and our relationship with Him in absolutes. He knows us. He knows how damaged and frail and broken we are. He gets it. He understands how we fail and why we fail. He knows it better than we do. The mechanism of it. But the reality here is, is that God will not embrace, will not embrace me and my life until it all belongs to His glory. So therefore, we're having to look at ourselves and say, wait a second, is what I'm in, is what I'm so concerned with from the Father or from the world? Is what I'm so concerned with right now from my God truly or is it something of the world that I've tried to sanitize or make fake faults holy? Which is it? Because believers, we are desperate and do not know it for the mountaintop because perspective is everything in living for Christ. When He stays foremost in our hearts and our minds, then the world does not seem so large and so enticing. The more I gaze at Him, the more I'm obsessed with the person of Christ and the image of Christ, the more He dominates my thinking and He dominates my life the less I will be drawn into this world. Nature abhors a vacuum. Hates it. And if I'm not going to obsess and focus on Christ, I will by necessity become focused on this world. I have a choice. And the choice is I can train my heart and train my mind on the living God. Or I will allow the world to find its way into my life. As followers of Christ, God has called us to reject the world and its allure in favor of a life committed to the glory of the Savior alone. There's the call today. Is that once again, we're looking at life. We're going to look at the lives we're leading. What's going to happen here today may involve you literally making commitment to Christ that's never been made before. But it's going to concern the life you lived yesterday and the day before and the day before and the one you'll take on tomorrow. It's not about your conduct within the body of believers right now in the house. It's about who I am or who you are at work or at play. 
at midnight or at 4 a.m. In the unspoken for times of our lives. Who am I? Am I really committed to Him? Or have I allowed myself to become intoxicated with the world again? Fundamentally, we understand that men and women naturally are greedy and aggressive. That's the way we are. We talked about, you know, laugh about a conversation before church about the, the little guys at, at the daycare. And the reality is, is that they fight all the time, constantly, about everything. Nobody taught them how. It's in their DNA. Spiritually speaking, it's in there already. That's why, seriously, to be honest with you, the, the crazy statement we can ever make is my kid will never do that. That's a lie. Your kid will do anything. Anything. They will. You know why? Because you did. If you'll remember, you did. If you'll think back, you did. It's born into us. Solomon writes in Proverbs 27, verse 20, Sheol and the Baden are never satisfied. And never satisfied are the eyes of man. Once it becomes an eye issue, it starts with a toy among toddlers. But once it becomes an eye issue, what you see with your eye, you desire with your heart, once it becomes that, there's no end to it. That's why I don't know anybody that ever bought a car and said, this is the nicest car I'm ever going to need. That last... About as long as it takes for it to get dirty enough to need washing. And then suddenly that car that was the most spectacular thing we'd ever bought just isn't quite good enough anymore, is it? It's gotten old. When the smell fades, all of a sudden it just doesn't satisfy anymore. Because we're never satisfied. Once I allow myself to go down that road of I, I will never be satisfied. In the New Testament, Paul builds upon this sacred truth when he describes our bondage to the wicked desires of the world by saying in Ephesians 2.3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. The eye is the introduction to the passions of the flesh. Following what I can see causes me to do that, that strange biblical thing that's so true for people, it causes me to covet. I start to want what I do not have, what others have. I start to desire things that are not mine. David's the example. It, it ends in desiring a wife that's not his own. But it didn't begin with a wife. That wasn't his first covet. He had started long before that to desire things that were not his. It ended in murder and adultery. It ended in condemnation from God. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of it ends in wrath. The, the eye, the path that the eye will lay out for us always ends in the wrath of God every time. But Paul says this. He says, we all once lived. Once again, one of those differentiations, a line of demarcation between who we used to be and who we are supposed to be. Now those are, those are important topics, important ideas, concepts for us. Used to be is dead in Christ, right? The man I once was is dead in Christ. But there can be a long way between who I am and who I'm supposed to be. There can be a distance. 
A perceivable distance between who I am right now and who God is commanding that I be. That's why he preaches. That's why he teaches over and over and over again within the scriptures. Because we don't, we don't manage it very well. We don't do it as well as we need to. We all once lived. We were once that way. But that way is now dead. We now have the opportunity to be something radically different. Paul's not so gentle reminder that living for the world from which our... Uh, excuse me. That we are supposed to be done with living for the world from which our Lord bled and died to save us. Christ died so that the old man, me, you, without the blood applied, can now die. Can be done with. Can be gone. Christ died so that that can die. The world in total. Corrupted by sin and transgression. Overcome by Christ on the cross. So that we can now be the righteousness of God. All that work on Calvary was for the purpose of saving our souls and ending the domination of sin in our lives. It doesn't mean we won't sin anymore. It means we are no longer dominated by sin. Before Christ, before salvation, you had no choice but to be lost. Because that was who you are down to the very depths of your soul. That's who you were. You were no better than sin and transgression and death and hell. That's all you were worth. That's all I was worth. Christ changes that. The blood applied washes away the sins of the life. All of it. Gone in an instant. Now we can be righteousness. The finished work of Jesus on Calvary is the heart and soul of the gospel message and the only truth that saves. If we don't want to be who we are naturally, the only hope is the cross. It is the gospel. It is the old rugged cross wet with the blood of a Savior that died so that we don't have to. However, excuse me, He overcame the world for us. However, the scriptures constantly remind us of this because believers are dreadfully incompetent tenders of their own souls. Dreadfully incompetent. The Bible is to tell us how to and why we should turn our backs completely on the world. And it does it over and over again. It tells how to embrace the role of impoverished outcasts and condemned wretches. Because it's better than the finite pleasures of life in the palaces of men. If the Bible leaves us alone and leaves us to our own devices, I'll choose the palace and I'll choose the riches every time. Because I will fall back into the only thing I've ever known. And that was trusting my eyes. Was trusting my desires. When I was lost, my eyes were right. And when I'm found, if the Bible doesn't intervene, I'll still believe my eyes are right. But the Bible intervenes. The truth stands in the way. It fills the breach. Look again, it's Paul that clearly enunciates the path forward for the believers. And it's couched in the language of the new faith in Christ Jesus. In Romans 13, verse 14, Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So if there's a commandment for us today, what are we being told to do as a church, whether it's gathered in this room or, or spread out as we are during this strange time? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an intentional act. It's something we do. And he's commanding that we do it. Put it on. 
Literally, believers are to intentionally put on Christ or wear the Lord Jesus. In Usafe, we are no longer our own. Person, our own style, our own personality, our own uniqueness, our eccentricities. Instead, we are to be little Christ for the world to see. Garbing ourselves with Jesus. Our protection is in being as like our master as we possibly can be. How do we find the right path? Be as much like Jesus as possible. Now, we, we, we know that, but it's incredibly hard. Because it means that we've got to look inside and find all those things that don't look anything like Jesus and get rid of those things. But we don't want to do that. Because go and look back. Because it confronts our style, our personality, our uniqueness, and our eccentricities. All those things that we think make us uniquely us, we have to now view through the prism of the scriptures. And that God may say, hey, look, you can have that, that attitude about people, but it's devilish. You can think that on your own time, but you can't look like Christ and think that about others. Hey, you can have that attitude about things and, and think that's the right thing to do, but it's, but it's wicked. But it's wicked. And so now you've got to part with it. Because God doesn't care where we're from or how we were raised or what we were taught was right. All God cares about what is right. And that's it. If the Bible says it, it's right. If it doesn't, it's wrong. If the Bible condemns it, it's just simply wrong. And there's no wiggle room. Whatever our Lord emphasized or modeled for us is the only path forward. Now, how do we do this and give no quarter to the flesh that wants nothing more than to slake its thirst and dreadful sin? Because that's what our flesh still wants. We're killing this flesh and killing these desires. But it doesn't completely die until we are physically dead, right? At that point, sin dies. When you are laid here in this church and we, we preach the healing words of the gospel over you for those who remain, understand you are sin will truly be dead to you then. You'll never sin again. It will be gone forever. Until then, we will battle. We will grapple with the flesh and grapple with sin. And there is no age that is immune from it. You won't outlive it. It's there. It's there. It may transform. It may have been one thing at 20, another at 30, another at 40 or 50. But even at 100, it's there. Because it's wired into us. It was there before you could think. It was already in you. Also, Paul, throughout his writing, gives us the keys. Let's talk about these very quickly. First, Paul tells us that what freedom in Christ by putting on the Savior is not. It's not hollow tradition and meaningless ceremony. There's no number of, of rosaries or Hail Marys or, or whatever you can do or checks you can write or, or mission trips you can go on or any of these things that will do this. Those things are all by themselves. Even, even things like missions that are biblically mandated are by themselves just actions. He writes of carnal religiosity. And a lot of that is part of what I would simply call myself carnal religiosity. It's fleshly practice. It's not, it doesn't stem from a transformed heart. 
You can take a natural heart of stone anywhere in the world and lead it to do anything in the world and it will not manifest itself as one who's been transformed by the will and purpose of God. But if you've been transformed by the will and purpose of God, to be honest with you, you will worship God in all you do. You will serve God in everything you do. Your, your daily life becomes your mission field. Evangelism becomes second nature. Because you are serving the living God with a transformed heart and life. Paul writes in Colossians 2.23, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, not my carnal religiosity. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's the reality. If I'm just doing a bunch of stuff, doing a bunch of stuff, busyness, involvement won't stop the indulgence of the flesh. It won't do it. All the cultural Christianity in the world will not stop you or me from indulging in the natural and destructive urges of the flesh. Here's the problem. Those become part of the life of the church when we do it that way. The life of the church becomes a life of indulgence. And we've all been through it in that situation where people sat on committees or, 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 or taught or, or did those things and they were just simply in it for themselves and not for the glory of God. Only real, authentic submission to the Word of God, to the Word and the God of the Word will do this. Only true submission. The true response to this, the method which Paul gives us is threefold. He tells us what to do. First, believers must learn how to walk by the Holy Spirit. Folks, we are not just because, just because it's not uproarious in this room. It does not mean that we are not seeking the touch of the Holy Spirit, not just in this room where he's assured together, but everywhere we go. We need the Holy Spirit as much as any group needs the Holy Spirit. We need him. He was given to us, the church, on purpose by God. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How can we put aside the flesh and stop living by eyesight and start living by, by the eyes of faith and, that are focused on the will and purpose of God that see only Calvary? How can we do that? How we do it? Walk by the Spirit. I change the way I walk. Now, it sounds hard, but it's not really hard because if you really think how many, how many decisions do we make in which we may pray about them, but we've already made up our mind before we ever prayed? We're praying, hoping we're right. We're praying, hoping God won't object. We're praying we've already decided what the best path for us is, and we think it's the right one, and we're going to go with it. And we're hoping that God doesn't say anything. We pray almost with crossed fingers. That's not walking in the Spirit. If at the very least I can't pray with an open mind toward the will and purpose of God, then I'd be just quite blunt with you. Why am I praying? Now, I can pray this way. I pray, God, I know what I want to do, God. Change my mind. If this is not your will, Father God, change my mind. Show me, God. And have an open mind, an open heart about it. And see, God, I, I can see now. I can tell you how many times I've counseled people. 
And when you talk to them for five minutes, you realize they have already decided what they're going to do. Anything I say is, is hopeless nonsense. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what the Word clearly teaches. They're going to do what they're going to do. They have decided. They're the master of their own faith. I'm going to tell you this much. If you're going to serve Christ, you will never be the master of your own faith. Never be. He's always going to do with me what he chooses, what he knows is best. We do this by seeking the Spirit, praying and petitioning God for His guidance and influence in our lives, walking with Him and never ignoring His role in our lives. As believers, we feel cut off from God, neglected by His presence because we do not seek God, the Holy Spirit, in the first place. We feel cut off because we're never seeking Him. All the biblical teaching in the world is, is, is information and never knowledge or wisdom if it's not accompanied by the impact of the Holy Spirit. I'll just be quite blunt with you. If I'm not seeking the Holy Spirit... The, the good that preaching does me is minimal. The good that devotion does me is minimal. The good that prayer does me is minimal. If I'm not seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit in my life. Next, acknowledge the miracle of God that is your salvation. First, we seek the Holy Spirit. Next, we just simply acknowledge the fact that I am saved, that God has saved me. He, the Lord of creation, called you, beckoned to your heart and drew you out from the fires of torment in order to save you. Paul writes in Colossians 3.12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Listen, folks, for you and for, for me too, the church of which you are a part and I are a part, we are the chosen ones of God. And he says that we are holy and beloved. Holy and beloved. That's what he says. Holy and as God's chosen ones. Holy. Whose words? Not my words. I didn't make this up. It's God's words. God says we are holy and beloved. Now the reason I would say that is this. I would say that is this. If I am holy and beloved and God has told me this, then I ought to be acting holy and beloved, right? That, that's, the, that's logical, is it? It's a logical inference. I remember, and I've used this example before. I remember years and years ago when I was at USM. Um, 18-year-old boy sitting in these, in these lecture halls. And this guy comes in to lecture. And he talks about, about how some young people were just simply did, weren't ambitious enough to do great things. To go out and do great things. And he compared us to pigeons. And he said that pound for pound, pigeons are, 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 are like running backs. They're muscular and they're fast. And they're great flyers. But if you go to any American city, where do you see pigeons? Walking around with little stubby legs. Legs that aren't meant to carry them anywhere because they're meant to fly. But what are pigeons doing? We're walking around with little stubby legs. I think most believers are just like those pigeons. We are holy and beloved, but we insist on walking around with little, ugly little stubby legs. We are holding ourselves back in Christ because we refuse to acknowledge the very, very simple truth that we're holy and beloved. Here's the reality, like, um, like C.S. Lewis talked about. It's the difference between being able to have that, that trip to the seashore and making mud pies. We're satisfied with mud pies when we could have a trip to the seashore. We could have a holiday. We're making mud pies. I think most believers are right there just like that. We are holy and beloved. Why do we fool around with the things of this world? Because I'll be honest with you, no I'm just telling you, in Christ Jesus, you're better than this world. In Christ Jesus, your life is more precious than this world. Blood's been applied to it. God says you're holy and beloved. 
Because of this reality, anything declared by God is a reality and everything that contradicts it is fantasy and delusion. To see yourself any other way is to be involved in a very dangerous delusion. We should live like we are God's children, display this relationship with Him by way of kindness, compassion, humility, submission, and deep patience. That if we are God's, then it's time we acted like we belong to God. Now that doesn't just begin, this is you, that's me too. That's me looking back right now at, the, at this very moment at every grouchy time. At every faithless time, at every untrusting time, and saying to myself, I'm supposed to be chosen and holy and beloved. And the chosen and the holy and beloved are kind and they're compassionate and they're humble and they submit and they have patience. And most of the time I feel like I have none of those things. So I've got growing to do too. Now lastly, the last thing as we close, as believers seeking a true commitment to the Christ of the cross and tomb and mountain, throne, and the Christ of infinite glory, it begins with the Word of God. Paul writes that we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Look, the how that begins our journey is knowledge of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Renewed in knowledge. We will never be who we are supposed to be as long as we remain ignorant of the Word of God. The Word of God is the most vital thing to us. Given blood was shed so that you can read it in your own language. Great cost. Simply put to greater men that, that, that reside in this room at this time. Gave their lives so that we could have this. It is not just precious because the scriptures declare it to be precious. But it is precious because God has used church history to over and over again teach us just how precious the word of God is. You know what? It seems such a weird thing to stand before you and, and, and preach a sermon about reading your Bible. But preachers do it all the time. You know why? Because we're not in it enough. Because we don't give it enough credit. We can never get there if we're not seeking him daily and aggressively and breathlessly through his word. The new person that we are to become in Jesus is renewed every day by the words of the Bible that are poured into our hearts. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul explains that this renewal is as vile to us as food or drink, as the blood in our veins, so we do not lose heart. There's the problem. Paul points at it right there. The problem with believers is this, is that momentarily for a season, we can lose heart. We can forget those promises. We can forget who we are. We can forget being chosen and holy. We can forget the power of the Holy Spirit. We can forget all those things. And we can live again in a way that's, that's hardwired into us. For a season, we can forget. We don't want to lose heart. The Word in us preached over us and witnessed to us, testified around us and lived through us is the antidote to the spiritual malaise we feel when subject to the world and its servants. Here, there, there's the issue. The issue is that we don't live here. We don't spend our days here. We go out into the world where people are brutal. They talk to each other horribly. They do terrible things. And we feel like it gets on us, like it drags us down. We will lose heart out there. None of us in this room would show up on the day of a marathon to run, having not run one time in the interim. You could try that, but you wouldn't get very far, would you? 
You might not get a mile down the road before you collapsed. No one in this room is going to make it 26 miles without running at all. You prepare for long journeys, don't you? You set aside time and you set aside effort to make sure that you're not going to give up. Because I tell you what, nothing would be more embarrassing than starting a race like that and having to quit. Nothing would be more humiliating than getting halfway through and realizing that you're just not man enough, you're just not woman enough to make it. All of us want to avoid that. We're doing, the, we're making the same mistake in faith. Because we don't nurture ourselves through the word. We don't, our hearts aren't stirred when it's preached and it, or when it's taught. Or, or we don't seek out the Lord God on a daily basis. We try to cubbyhole him in one single day or one hour of our week. And think that's going to be enough to get me through. And we're starving ourselves. Starving ourselves for the word. Paul says, he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Renewed by the word. Day by day. Not occasionally. Now, when I feel run down every day, as much as I can get it, the human body triumphantly dies. But human hearts are discouraged and dragged down by what we see and experience in this vile world. But the Word of God repairs the spiritual damage. And it is, it is for that that we are starving. Because we're out in this world and it takes away the joy. And it strikes at our peace. And we need the word so desperately. And only the word can sow peace in our hearts. Only the word can. Today, church, be resolute. Find the mountain of God and the word of God where he is magnified. Where Christ is beautiful. Where the good news is the very song of your heart and the world is a passing fancy best left to fade into oblivion. Turn your back on the world today and turn your gaze forever to the one who saves you from your sin. Let's pray together.